Well, thank you very much for coming. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a uh, policy analyst uh, with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. We will start now, even though people are still trickling in. Um, I assume uh, that the weather uh, has kept a few uh, people back. Um, but thank you very much for uh, coming out uh, in this, in this, on this cold day and uh, for joining us uh, here today. Um, the Baltic countries of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are no strangers uh, to the vagaries of fortune. In the interwar period, they experienced a brief time of independence and relative prosperity before being invaded by communists and uh, Nazis and occupied during the war and then uh, for becoming, becoming a part of the Soviet Empire. With the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism, the three Baltic countries regained independence and successfully embraced political and economic liberalization. Between 2000 and 2007, their GDPs grew at an average annual rate of some 8%. All three countries are democracies and members of the European Union and of uh, the North Atlantic Treaty um, Organization. The Baltic integration into the global economy brought tremendous benefits. Few people would deny that life in the Baltic countries is substantially better than it was under communism. Similarly, it is not possible to deny that incomes in the Baltic countries are higher than they are in countries which have embraced political and economic liberalization in a less wholehearted way. Yet it is also true that economic liberalization exposed these small countries uh, to crises that originated in uh, Western economies, not least in the United States. In 2009, for example, uh, the Estonian economy shrunk by 14%, Latvian economy by 18%, and Lithuanian economy by 15%. In his new book, The Last Shall Be the First, The East European Financial Crisis, our first speaker, Anders Aslund, argues that the governments in the Baltic countries were right to respond to the 2008 financial crisis by slashing spending while maintaining a fully fixed exchange rate between their domestic currencies and the euro. According to Aslund, this internal devaluation allowed the Baltic countries to quickly return to growth. Our second speaker, Desmond Lachman, contends that the sharp decline in the GDP in the Baltic countries in 2009 uh, would not have happened if, instead of austerity measures, uh, the Baltic governments had abandoned fixed exchange rates in favor of currency devaluation. Anders Aslund, uh, who will be speaking first, uh, has been a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute uh, of, uh, for International Economics since 2006. He is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. He examines the economies of Russia, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe. He's worked at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace from 1994-2005, where he's been uh, a director of the Russian and Eurasian program. He's also worked for the Brookings Institution and the Kennan Institute for Advanced Russian Studies. He's earned his doctorate from Oxford University. He's an author of uh, 11 books and a prolific writer, and I'm not even going to try to read through all of the titles of his books because it would take too long, but trust me, they're all very informative and very impressive. So with that introduction, um, 
allow me to welcome Andres Asselund. Does it come down? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here at the uh, K2 Institute, and thank you very much uh, for doing this, uh, Marianne, and it's uh, very kind of... Uh, Desmond also uh, to come along because uh, Desmond and I are good friends but we tend to take slightly different points of view so I thought that uh, we would be a, a good complement here uh, today. What uh, uh, I'm trying to say that is that you can solve the uh, crisis in different ways and you can manage it uh, somewhat differently from what people might uh, think is possible. Uh, you are probably aware of the excellent book by Walter Bajot, the <clears throat> founder of The Economist, Lombard Street. And there he has a wonderful quote which says, The greatest pleasure in life is doing what people say you can't do. And this is exactly what uh, these Europeans in general and uh, the three Baltic countries uh, in particular have done. And I would like to emphasize three things that they have done. The first is that uh, they have insisted on the, their exchange rate, uh, fixed exchange rate for a number of uh, reasons that we'll discuss uh, more later. And secondly, they have cut, all of them, public expenditures by about 10% of GDP last years, a kind of cuts that people don't think are possible until they are necessary. In fact, many countries have undertaken uh, such uh, <clears throat> cuts. And thirdly, we ha uh, have seen now, two months ago, how the Latvian government that carried out this cure of the economy did not lose elections, but uh, sharply increased uh, its uh, populist support in ordinary democratic um, parliamentary elections. So let me just give you a map so that you are clear on where we are. These are the 10 uh, uh, East, new Eastern members of the European unions but, uh, uh, that I discuss in my book, but here I'll uh, focus on the Baltic countries since they, they are the most uh, striking ones. And... Uh, the problem has been large falls in GDP, and uh, biggest of all from uh, uh, top to bottom has been Latvia, that saw a fall in its GDP uh, of 25%. Uh, and the cause is easy uh, to understand. It was a massive financial overheating followed by a sudden stop. That is when international financial markets no longer wanted uh, to provide um, financing. So where are the main problems? Well, excessive uh, foreign indebtedness of the private sector, but no problem in the public sector, unlike what you are now seeing in southern, uh, southern Europe and um, to some extent in, uh, uh, in Ireland. Uh, so for a long time, in particular the years 2005 to 2007, uh, this region was seeing a large inflow of capital, cheap money uh, being printed by uh, the U.S. Fed and the, uh, the ECB that went to the most um, 
beneficial uh, places where you can get the, uh, could get the highest growth and also the, the highest uh, returns. So this was very similar to the East Asian uh, crisis of 97-98, which was also uh, uh, <clears throat> a crisis of excessive uh, success rather than uh, any uh, uh, fundamentally bad policies. That is, the uh, financial constraint on the private sector was not sufficient. And if you look upon the numbers, the... Uh, these are sharp turnarounds. If we take Latvia, that was uh, the starkest. Latvia had, uh, for the three years, 2005 to 2007, an average growth of 11%. If you take it in a longer period from 2000 to 2007, it had 9% growth a year, and the rest of the Baltics were uh, similar. In 2007, there was already some slowing down. And then you see Latvia had a decline of 18% of GDP in uh, 2009, Lithuania 15, and Estonia uh, 14%. Uh, uh, so my thesis is that uh, uh, you only devalue uh, when you really have to, if there's no other way out because then you get rid of the pressure uh, to undertake uh, reforms. If you need to do structural reforms, this is the best opportunity uh, to do it. So the firm exchange rate uh, forces uh, uh, reforms. And we have many examples of this. I picked here a couple of examples. There is a, a recent paper in the American Economic Review that compares uh, Barbados and Jamaica, Barbados has done wonderfully because it has had a peg since 1975 to the U.S. dollar, while Jamaica has allowed itself all kinds of bad policies, partly because it has continuously devalued. Another example is Denmark, which has had a peg to the first Deutsche Mark and then Euro since 1982. Uh, and unlike Sweden, that... Uh, has uh, uh, de devalued and uh, started its reforms, structural reforms, only after the horrendous shock uh, uh, in the, the early 90s. I could add here, for example, Netherlands, 1987, uh, which undertook substantial uh, adjustments. So you can do adjustments when you, uh, uh, <clears throat> in a crisis, and if you don't devalue, then you're more likely to do it than otherwise. So if you need structural uh, reform, try not to devalue for that uh, reason alone. And an advantage uh, of holding a peg, as Latvia did, is that the, the bank system survived. And uh, one of the big uh, uh, positives is that the bank recapitalization has been much less than the IMF uh, uh, had uh, expected. And in the second round, you have advantages that uh, the government is really forced to undertake the uh, necessary structural reforms. If you cut uh, the public deficit by uh, uh, close to 10% uh, of GDP, as uh, Latvia did in 2009, you can't cut evenly. So what uh, the Latvian government tried to do was to cut um, 
the public administration uh, cost by 25%. They have cut, for example, the military by 50%. And uh, public salaries were supposed to be cut by 35% in two rounds. Probably in reality has been cut by, uh, by 30%. You know, there are always too many state agencies around. So why not close them? Uh, do a review. Which of them do you really need? And the Latvians uh, uh, got a reasonable answer. They have closed half their state agencies. Uh, a typical feature of the Soviet Union was that there were hospitals and hospital beds, uh, but there was very little equipment and very little medicine, which is not necessarily the best way of getting good health care. Latvia had the problem that they had kept as many uh, hospitals as they had in Soviet times, and the population had fallen by over 15%. So what do you do? Latvia had 49 hospitals on 2.3 million people. Is that a reasonable number? No. Perhaps uh, Latvia should have one quarter of that number, but they stopped at closing 24 hospitals. Uh, you ne- don't need real estate for, uh, uh, for health care. You need uh, good medicine and uh, uh, good uh, equipment. And uh, there were also a few too many public employees. So in this rather uh, small country with uh, a public administration of 90,000 people, uh, about 15% uh, were sacked, uh, 40,000 uh, public uh, employees. I can give other examples. Uh, Latvia had one teacher on six children. The average in Europe is one teacher on um, 12 children. So what do you do? You try to rationalize and uh, get the ratios uh, right. And these are things that you can only do in the crisis, where you feel that you really have a strict uh, uh, budget uh, uh, constraint. So what... Have the outcomes been? Gross wages fell at most by 12% in 2009. These are quarterly numbers, so it's not full year. The flat income uh, tax survives, while the value-added tax um, was raised by three percentage points. Of course, you get the increased efficiency. And the current account uh, 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 turned around from a big deficit to a big surplus. In, uh, in virtually no time. And uh, last quarter, uh, Latvia uh, recorded growth after nine, mu- uh, nine quarters of uh, uh, negative uh, growth. And here you see what has happened uh, to, to inflation and gross wages. So at its highest, gross wages were actually increasing at a rate of 33%, uh, which is then quite, uh, quite impossible, and inflation catching up somewhat later, peaking at uh, 18% in annualized uh, terms in, the, uh, in May uh, 2008. And after that, prices needed to go down, so did wages, and this has happened. But what has also not happened is uh, a de- deflationary cycle that many were afraid of because um, that uh, 
was not uh, really a danger. If you have a small open economy, the uh, price level is to a considerable extent imposed uh, uh, from, uh, from the surrounding. So the worry was rather that uh, the price adjustment would not, uh, would not be enough. But instead, we have seen substantial improvement in, in the efficiency. And uh, here you see truly radical changes in, uh, in uh, uh, the current account, if anything, too much. The Latvian current account deficit in 2006 and 2007 was almost 23% of GDP. Estonia and Latvia similar, but not quite as uh, uh, sharp. And last year, all three countries uh, had uh, substantial surpluses. Uh, Latvia by 9% of uh, uh, GDP. And let me <clears throat> then move to... Uh, uh, to uh, the political economy of this situation. Uh, the unrest has been minimal. Uh, Latvia had uh, some riots on one day, the 30th of January 2009. People were so shocked so it stopped. Uh, uh, Lithuania had some riots the day after, and that has <coughs> been it. There's not been a serious uh, popular unrest. And the effect is, as I mentioned about the, uh, the economics, it's also about the politics. If you cut public expenditure by 8 to 10 percent of GDP, as all these three countries have done, it's politically easier than to cut 2 percent. If you cut 2 percent of public expenditures, you make all services a bit worse, uh, and uh, you are being perceived as a mean ruler. If you cut it by 8 to 10 percent, people realize this is a crisis. We have to do something. It's a question of, uh, of our nation, and it's not a question of uh, a competent or incompetent uh, government. So what people, in effect, in the Baltic countries have uh, demanded is a realistic, which means a radical uh, crisis uh, uh, resolution. They have not asked for the crisis resolution to be postponed, but ask for it to be handled. And <clears throat> politically, something quite interesting has happened in the region, and here I broaden it uh, a bit to take all the 10 uh, new Eastern members of the European Union. Eight of the 10 Central and East European countries in the European Union have changed government during the crisis. But by and large, they have... Uh, changed towards the right. So we have seen a number of governments uh, that have had uh, countries that have had a surprise victory of uh, uh, the free market centre-right parties. I think particularly last year or uh, this year of the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Latvia. So at present nine out of ten countries have centre-right governments. And the centre-right, and this is the free marketeering centre-right, has never been stronger in Eastern Europe than is currently the, uh, the case. The communists are virtually being wiped out, uh, and uh, the socialists are n not significant in any country now apart from Slovenia, where you have a rather moderate social democrats uh, in government. 
And nor has there been a big problem with the hard right. The only country that has a problem with the hard right is, um, is, uh, is Hungary. Uh, uh, and uh, you, uh, you can easily point out that this problem is uh, greater actually in Western Europe than in Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe today. So what has happened is that common sense has uh, won. And the most striking election was indeed in Latvia, where on the 2nd of October this year, in the parliamentary elections, the government won. And uh, the four-party minority coalition went from 45% of the parliamentary seats to 63% per, uh, of the uh, of the seats. Uh, and this is happening after GDP last year fell by 18%. This go current government came in in April last year and uh, uh, has then uh, carried out uh, most of um, uh, austerity uh, policies. So what are my conclusions from this? Uh, that, uh, uh, sorry, I should uh, first take the alternative, would have been uh, devaluation. The advantage with devaluation is that you get early recovery through exports. The disadvantage is, is that you get big capital losses. The bank system would uh, collapse, and uh, uh, that would be of no advantage. And after the bank system a lot of uh, uh, people and companies having loans in the banks would uh, go into bankruptcy as well. So there would be a, a lot of uh, uh, mess, which would be rather unpredictable. And uh, who would gain from uh, <clears throat> devaluation? The oligarchs and the big exporters what we saw very much in Russia after the big devaluation, that the rich got much richer, and then it's more difficult uh, uh, to maintain uh, uh, support uh, for the, uh, the necessary reforms. And uh, without devaluation, you wouldn't have, feel the same uh, pressure to undertake uh, reforms uh, uh, either. So my conclusions here are, the ultimate problem behind, which I haven't discussed, it is loose monetary policy of the U.S. Fed and the ECB. If you don't know it, the U.S. Fed has maintained a, a, a negative real interest rate from the end of 2001 uh, until today, and uh, just negative, essentially zero. And if you have this amount of money, some countries suffer. Which countries suffer? the countries that have good economic policies so that uh, it's attractive to, um, to uh, pour money into them, and a small country like, uh, uh, the small countries like the Baltics would not be able to defend themselves regardless of what uh, exchange rate uh, regime they would uh, have. It's argued that Central Europe did better because they had uh, uh, stricter uh, monetary policy and uh, that they had floating exchange rate, true, but they had also much lower uh, growth in the early part of the 2000s. They were less uh, attractive, 
and the economic convergence had gone uh, further. Uh, Romania did not suffer much less uh, than, uh, than the, uh, the Baltics with a floating exchange rate. The same is true of other smaller countries in the Balkans. And it's very interesting also to see that no country in this region changed exchange rate regime. So the countries themselves did not see it as an obvious advantage that they would change uh, to another one. And the final conclusion is that uh, there's really no need for devaluation. And what I'm seeing, it is that the European convergence proceeds. Here you have GDP uh, in purchasing power uh, parity as percent of uh, the European average, 93 and 2008. And I think that we are coming uh, back uh, to this uh, uh, picture. So therefore, I've chosen this front page of my book, The Last Shall Be the First. We are now seeing that the uh, countries that have suffered the most, they are the ones that are undertaking the most progressive uh, uh, free market uh, reforms, and they are likely to benefit uh, in terms of a better uh, supply forces for that in the future. And the picture, if you wonder where it is from, is from uh, the old town in Riga, showing you just how nice and uh, calm this part of the world is, because, uh, in spite of the financial turmoil. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anders. And uh, as Monty Python would say, and now for something completely different. Um, Desmond Lachman um, is, uh, like myself, in part a South African uh, export. Uh, his uh, bachelor's is from uh, University of Edwardesrand, my old, old alma mater. Although he's um, and he and he got his PhD from uh, uh, Cambridge University in uh, in England. Um, he joined uh, American Enterprise Institute uh, in 2003, I believe. Um, before serving, um, uh, after serving as a managing director and chief emerging market economic, economic strategist at uh, Lehman, no, at Solomon Smith and Barney, uh, he previously served as a deputy director in the International Monetary Fund's Policy Development and Review Department, and was active in the staff formulation of the IMF policies. He has written extensively on the global economic crisis and the U.S. housing market bust. Um, U.S. housing market bust. He also wrote on the U.S. dollar and the strains on the new, uh, on the EU um, eurozone area. Uh, he has uh, focused on the global mac macroeconomic uh, issues, global currency issues, and multilateral lending agencies. Uh, he's been an, an adjunct professor at Georgetown University since uh, this year. And uh, please help me welcome Desmond Lachman. Thank you very much for the invitation and thank you for giving me the opportunity to express my views with my good friend uh, Anders Aslund. Uh, I wasn't invited here to agree with him, uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to totally disagree 
with his evaluation of what's occurred in Latvia. Uh, the title of my presentation is Latvia as a Cautionary Tale for Europe. Uh, this is precisely the direction in which Europe does not want to go. And in my view, uh, this is really the price of stubbornly sticking to an exchange rate, you know, very much like countries that stuck to the gold standard for too long during the 1930s uh, were the ones that really suffered uh, the most. And I'm not quite sure that I understand uh, why it is uh, that they're doing this. Uh, perhaps at the start I should just say that uh, I judge a country's success in a very different way from unders. Uh, to me it's not really very important you know, whether they've got a fixed exchange rate, whether they've got a floating exchange rate. It's not very important you know, whether their current account is in balance, whether it's in surplus, whether it's in deficit. It doesn't matter whether the government gets elected one time after the other. You know, we just need to think that Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, got elected repeatedly during the 1930s, which wasn't exactly uh, the most successful period in United States economic history. I judge whether a country is successful or not as to whether it uh, has output growth uh, that allows prosperity to come around, whether it's got employment growth, whether the distribution of income is reasonable. Uh, those are the yardsticks by which I judge a country. Uh, so by those yardsticks, uh, I think uh, Latvia has to be regarded as uh, rather a failure. Uh, let me just say uh, that uh, I think Milton Friedman would find it ironic that at a place like Cato, one is discussing uh, a country like Latvia that stubbornly sticks to a fixed exchange rate, you know, just at the time that the Eurozone, to which Latvia aspires to be a member, uh, is in the process of unravelling, as uh, this chart indicates. You know, these are uh, Eurozone, Eurozone spreads uh, for the peripheral countries that are indicating that markets are really pricing in, despite these huge bailouts, uh, that uh, there's a very high probability that these countries will default uh, within the next few years. Uh, I just want to do a few things. I want to take a closer look at some of uh, Latvia's economic statistics, uh, what it's done in the past. I want to talk a, as well about whether or not a fixed exchange rate has served Latvia very well. I want to take a look at where Latvia right now is and what are its prospects of joining the euro at some stage. And then I want to shift to the reasons why I think that the euro's in the process of unraveling. So the holy grail which Latvia is looking for is on its way uh, to uh, disappearance. Uh, let me just start looking at the GDP uh, numbers uh, on Latvia. You know, I think that this is really remarkable. These numbers are reminiscent to what occurred in the United States during the 1930s or occurred after Argentina collapsed. You don't have many episodes where output declines by 25% when unemployment goes up by 15 percentage points, where we've got unemployment at 20%. Uh, and, you know, if you look at it in terms of countries in the crisis uh, Latvia really is at the bottom of the class, followed very closely by uh, Estonia and Lithuania, other countries that stubbornly stuck uh, to the peg. Uh, 
if you look at the prospects, you know, normally when you have a very deep uh, recession, you know, you hope that you're going to have a very steep recovery. Uh, Latvia is not the case at all. You know, that Latvia still isn't uh, growing. You know, possibly in 2011, you might have 2 or 3% growth. I personally doubt that, you know, for reasons that I'll mention shortly. But what it means is you've got huge output gaps, huge employment gaps that are going to be uh, persisting for a while. And you can see it in terms of uh, this chart, which shows Latvia's uh, GDP right now is round about the level it was at 2003. I would estimate that it would take them a decade to get back to their peak. So this would be a true loss of a decade in output growth. You know, we're not quite sure how this is going to pan out uh, in the end. And you see this in terms of exports as well, is that exports are pretty flat. So that the current account adjustment, I would have been amazed if a country, when it collapses by 25%, that its current account balance doesn't move into surplus because essentially what occurs is the imports of the country are collapsing. And this is not the precise way that you're wanting your balance of payments adjustment to occur. And I think that all of this was very predictable at the time when people were warning Latvia not to engage in the kind of fiscal adjustment that it did in the absence of moving the exchange rates that would uh, boost uh, exports. So I think that this has very much uh, borne out, uh, validated the fears that people had uh, of this kind of uh, adjustment uh, process. Uh, Let me just talk a bit about uh, the merits of a fixed exchange rate. I think in Latvia's case, it clearly illustrates that a fixed exchange rate by itself is no panacea, that Latvia got itself into huge trouble by pegging its exchange rate and then being rather complacent about what was happening in its credit markets, what was happening in its housing market, uh, you know, as you can see from the following charts. Uh, Despite the fact that it's got a fixed exchange rate, uh, Latvia uh, is running up uh, credit growth 50, 60 percent, you know, the same as in uh, the uh, other Baltic countries. And this is the very reason why, you know, I'd agree with uh, uh, Anders that the United States might have a loose policy. Uh, but if you've got a fixed exchange rate, what you're doing is you're importing the looseness of the country against which you're pegging, you know, that that is the reason why. Uh, you might want to be floating so that you've got an independent policy that you can distinguish yourself from them. But the point I'm making here is that with a fixed exchange rate, you have a massive credit explosion. You have a massive run-up in inflation. So, you know, the supposed monetary, the supposed uh, discipline that the fixed exchange rate is to bring you in terms of good inflation performance, uh, Latvia uh, certainly uh, did not get. It got that in terms of the housing price bubble, larger bubble than you had in the United States. And what occurs in the process is that their competitiveness gets totally eroded. Now, it's very difficult to uh, be precise as to where Latvia is going in the future, but I think that it's wishful thinking to think that Latvia is all of a sudden going to start recovering everything's going to be fine, it's going to be in uh, the uh, European Union, and this is just going to be a bad memory. Let's just look at some of the, uh, some of the economic uh, factors that are going to make this really tough going for Latvia going forward. 
after all that Latvia has gone through, if I look at its public finances, Latvia is still running a budget deficit of something like 8.5-9% of GDP. Uh, recall that the Maastricht criteria is 3% of GDP. So what it means is that Latvia, still in deep depression, has got a lot of fiscal adjustment that it's still got to make, which is going to constitute a huge headwind for any uh, recovery. Latvia was a country that had no debt, uh, in the public sector, this is now we've already got something like 40% of GDP debt. This has to rise considering what's happening in their uh, public finances. If you look at the competitiveness side, uh, Latvia has gone through this huge depression and yet they have still not recovered the loss of competitiveness uh, that has occurred so that they're still many years away from getting a reasonable export boost, you know, which would have been the advantage of Latvia uh, devaluing its currency to promote exports at the same time that it engaged in uh, fiscal adjustment. Uh, one of the re reasons, the only argument that I could think that would have any validity in Latvia's case of their not having devalued the currency was what it might have done to the banks in terms of uh, loan losses in terms of uh, default rates, uh, that a lot of the loans were taken out in foreign currency. So if you devalued the currency, you would have had uh, a lot of losses in the banking sector. You would have had a lot of defaults. But if you take a look at this chart, all that Latvia has done, in my view, is it's delayed the default process by driving the economy deep into the ground uh, what you've got now is you've got default rates uh, that are something like 20% non-performing loans, uh, something like 20% of all credit extended. That is huge, and presumably going forward, uh, that is going to uh, continue uh, to uh, uh, increase. Uh, under should be familiar with a highly successful case of a country uh, that did massive amount of fiscal adjustment, did massive amount of bank restructuring, uh, put its economy on a good keel, uh, and uh, did this all without producing inflation to speak of, ran inflation at something like 2% after it did it. And that is the case of Sweden, which in 1992 uh, devalued its currency by something like 30%. So what occurred in Sweden was you had massive amount of fiscal adjustment, but the economy didn't tank, uh, that the economy had the mildest of recessions and quickly recovered because the devaluation induced a huge export boom. Exports in, uh, uh, in Sweden grew by something like 30% a year during those years. So Sweden did it, in my view, in the right way. It's what the UK is doing right now, which is another case in the right way, having re really serious fiscal adjustment, but do it in the context of a floating exchange rate or in terms of a depreciation where you have a chance of not getting yourself into a deflationary cycle. Uh, let me just mention uh, a word or two on uh, Europe, uh, just you know, the closing uh, remarks. I think it's relevant you know, because... Uh, I'm not quite sure why Latvia wants to join uh, the European Union with what's going on right now, uh, should I say join the euro. And um, 
my view is that the euro is in the process of unraveling. By the time Latvia meets the Maastricht criteria, uh, we're certainly not going to have uh, Greece, Ireland, Portugal and Spain uh, in that union. It's going to be a very different union that it's not going to be very hospitable uh, to increasing the number of members it uh, takes. Uh, as I uh, should just remind people, Milton Friedman, right from the very start, indicated that the euro project uh, was a flawed project. The whole argument was Europe isn't an optimum currency area, doesn't have the wage flexibility, doesn't have the labor mobility to do this. Friedman argued that as soon as Europe got tested by a major recession, you'd see the uh, union uh, uh, fracture. What Friedman didn't uh, get, uh, you know, that he could not possibly have uh, imagined in his wildest nightmares, is how big the imbalances would have been in the European Union. You know, he would have thought that markets would somehow have disciplined these countries, which uh, wasn't the case, that even though you have all these countries on a fixed exchange rate, they lose massive amounts of competitiveness, and uh, what occurs is they run up budget deficits uh, that are huge, uh, and this leads them to debt positions that are unsustainable. You know, that just looking at the chart, you know, countries like Greece uh, already in 2009, you know, got debt levels around about 120% of GDP, uh, and budget deficits around about 12, 13% of GDP. So they're basically in the same kind of... Uh, predicament as uh, Latvia, you know, if you try to do the budget adjustment uh, like Latvia does without moving the currency, uh, it's not, uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that these countries are going to go into deep recessions. What makes their position very different from Latvia is the fact that they've got very high levels of debt to GDP already. If you reduce the denominator, you know, if we have uh, a decline in nominal GDP by 15 20%, that alone is going to raise the debt levels to unsustainable uh, levels. And that is the reason why markets have figured this out, why markets are pricing in already uh, very high probabilities of default, even despite the $100 billion uh, thrown to support Greece, the $100 billion thrown to support Ireland. They're still saying that this is not going to work uh, in uh, uh, the end. Uh, I could just go through this uh, just in terms of, if you just look at Greece, you know, just in terms of stylized facts, uh, it's got a budget deficit of 14% of GDP, a public uh, debt ratio, you know, around about 120. It's lost uh, international competitiveness. If they try to regain the competitiveness by deflating the economy by 15% or so, have prices declined by that amount, that is going to boost their debt-to-GDP ratios. It's going to make it unsustainable. And if they try to do the budget adjustment uh, in a fixed exchange rate and they have the economy uh, GDP declining, uh, it's going to um, just make the whole debt dynamic uh, unsustainable. Uh, this chart just indicates already you know, what's occurred. The blue line is what's already occurred to the Irish economy you know, before they beginning another round of savage budget cuts. Ireland's economy has already contracted by 14%. Uh, this is just going to make the uh, debt dynamics uh, uh, quite um, unsustainable. Uh, so, in short, uh, if it's not, it hasn't been uh, sufficiently 
clear. Uh, I don't share uh, Anders's view, uh, optimistic view of Latvia, you know, being a paragon uh, to be followed. I think of Latvia as a cautionary tale. This is the future of uh, where Greece and Ireland are going to be going uh, if they persist in uh, this uh, economic lunacy of listening to the IMF, listening to the EU, trying to do this adjustment without restructuring the debt and without exiting uh, from the euro. Thank you very much. I think what we will do now um, is uh, I, I would like to ask Anders to uh, take a minute or two um, just to maybe comment on uh, some of Desmond's uh, uh, remarks and vice versa, and then we'll open it to Q&A. Uh, thank you very much, Desmond. I think you gave a very clear and succinct uh, presentation of a contrary argument, so I think that this is uh, very helpful. Let me first take two points that you did not take up, and I think this is uh, very helpful. You did not say that such a public uh, cuts uh, are not possible uh, in a democracy. This is a, a point that has been made uh, many times uh, before, and now we know that they are possible. We are seeing, for example, that Greece is this year p cutting public expenditure by 7.5% of GDP, uh, and uh, as late as April, the common view in the international press was that this is not possible in, in Greece. Now it's being undertaken. We are seeing similar things in Spain and in, uh, in Ireland. So this is one big idea that has disappeared from the discussion. The second idea that I was happy you did not um, contradict, we are seeing also that this is politically possible, that uh, people want to see responsible governments that have a way of solving uh, solving uh, the problems. Then you come to the uh, question uh, that you did raise. Uh, is this too big a cost or not? Of course, here we have two counterfactuals that uh, this uh, was the biggest credit boom the world has ever seen. And these were the countries that were, uh, for a number of reasons, most uh, exposed to it. 25% of uh, decline in GDP is, of course, massive. And you brought up Sweden, 91, 93, with a much smaller bubble. It was a decline of 6% of GDP, which was massive at the time. And if you think of this in terms of pension savings, this was a big blow uh, to, uh, to those. And uh, uh, Finland had a decline of GDP of 14%, 91 to 93. Uh, Finland then had a floating exchange rate, uh, had a peg and uh, moved to a floating exchange rate. And this was a very convincing argument for the Finns to join uh, the euro. So uh, the point is that you can get a mess in uh, with a peg or you can get a mess uh, with a floating exchange rate. And uh, it's very difficult to compare where is the, um, uh, the cost uh, uh, the biggest. And um, the more important point is that you have a solution that works. Uh, and uh, clearly the bolts have a solution that uh, works so that they can take themselves uh, out of uh, it. And then it's a question, uh, what is the cost? More on this. The IMF assessed 
in the letter of intent in December 2008 that Latvia had an output then that was 9% over potential. So this was uh, also in this sense a very overblown economy. And about one-third of the labor force worked in two sectors, construction and finance, that should normally be something like 12% of the labor force. So you can say that simply 20% should be taken out of the current jobs. Wouldn't that lead to unemployment? Well, unemployment in Latvia peaked at uh, 20%. It's declining now. It looks pretty obvious that this has to happen when you have such massive structural distortions. Sweden and Finland had very high unemployment in the early 90s uh, because certain industries, like housing construction, was losing out, while the export industry were catching up. It was trying to look now for the how fast the Latvian exports are growing. I think that they are growing by 15% this year. It's something in that order. So this is, and this is the beginning of the recovery. So I think that this looks um, reasonable. If we look upon the world as a whole, almost half the countries have a peg of one kind or the other. Which countries have pegs? By and large, the small countries, because they don't want too uh, large vagaries from um, floating exchange rate. And if you are a small economy what, and you are an open economy, you have no capital controls. What happens if you try to regulate your banking sector? Well, your banking moves to your neighbor. Uh, this is, uh, it's not possible to regulate the banks uh, in, uh, uh, in one nation alone. For example, Hungary is now trying to introduce a bank tax, uh, and people think that this will not be possible. Because why not do your banking in Slovakia or in, uh, in Austria uh, instead? What is missing here, what was missing, is uh, a pan-European uh, bank regulation. Now, uh, four different uh, financial re- uh, regulatory authorities are being set up within the European Union uh, because people realize that this uh, uh, is not... Um, Uh, not not, uh, satisfactory. And further to what would happen with devaluation? If there would have been a devaluation for the Baltic countries, uh, it would probably have been a huge devaluation because these countries are by and large uh, doing uh, their banking operations in euro. In Latvia, for example, 87% of all loans are in euro. So what happens on such a market? It's a very thin market. If it moves, then it moves radically. So a sensible guess would be that uh, a devaluation would be in order of 50%, uh, rather than, say, 20% when Sweden and Finland uh, were forced to devalue in 92. And what would happen at that time? Well, with foreign debts of 135% of GDP, essentially in the private sector, this will double. And uh, 270%, would Latvia be able to take that? Hardly. 
we would have seen uh, uh, huge defaults. And uh, let me just uh, yeah, unless you are very close to uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very close. To, so this debt situation would have been very complicated uh, uh, indeed. So and the public debt will now peak out below 50% as, uh, of GDP, as it seems. Of course, it's far above the 9% of GDP that it was before uh, the crisis, but, but it's a, a, ma a manageable uh, situation. So Latvia has chosen, uh, and the Baltic states have chosen something that is clearly manageable. And they have the exit and the euro that uh, Desmond doesn't uh, uh, believe in, but we, uh, we can move into that uh, possibly later. Thank you. I'll just be brief, you know, that I think that it's really far too early to make judgments as to what are the consequences of these kind of policies, you know, what is it going to do to the politics. You know, certainly within Europe, uh, Europe doesn't have a good record of dealing with economic stress, you know, that the political system, you know, if you just think of what occurred in the 1930s, isn't too encouraging. You're already seeing developments in Ireland. You're already seeing fracturing of politics. You're going to see rise of populism. You're going to see uh, people wanting to go different routes. So I just think it's far too early to uh, tell this. Uh, just in terms of Latvia, you know, I really, uh, in terms of counterfactuals, I really can't imagine that output would have dropped by more than what output has dropped with such little prospect of output uh, recovering. Uh, on the issue of uh, debt default, uh, it would probably have been a good idea for the uh, Latvians to be defaulting at an early stage, you know, let the Swedish banks uh, take their lumps, you know, that you'd have had private sector bankruptcies, you get defaults, you move on with life, you go ahead rather than having the state take this all over, or else what seems to be occurring to me is all you're doing is you're really just delaying. Uh, you, what they've done is they've pushed the defaults forward because, as you saw from that one chart, uh, rather than take the default immediately through the devaluation, what they've done is they've chosen to take the default through having output decline, through having prices decline, that increases the debt burden, so you get the defaults uh, at a later stage. Well, lucky the Georgetown students for getting uh, two very different perspectives. Um, let me open it up to Q&A. Uh, please, if you would, uh, make your question short and identify yourselves. Um, thank you very much. <clears throat> Andris Sprutz, uh, Latvian Institute of International Affairs, a visiting Fulbright fellow at the uh, uh, Center for Transatlantic Relations. And first of all, thank you very much for a excellent, uh, excellent uh, presentations. I would say that exactly the same discussions are going on in Latvia, so with different opinions. Uh, even though myself and absolute majority of Latvian population was in favor of Andres Aslunds. Uh, why? And, uh, of course, as you said, uh, I think very precisely, that, of course, the economic consequences are yet not known. And, of course, it's not about just Latvia. It's about wider regional, European, and also global context. At the same time, if you speak about Latvia, I think very important was the political element of this. I think what also Anders, to some extent, mentioned, that uh, democracy has some kind of... Uh, uh, 
element of, uh, let's say, costs what society accepts. And I think that politically and societally, uh, society was not ready to cross those red lines of the de 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 making devaluation. Why? First of all, fear of 91. In general, let us say that uh, uh, what Anders mentioned, 90% is uh, credits are loans are in euros. Uh, so this would be exactly, let's say, certain kind of coming back to the Soviet times with the devaluation of the rubble, which afterwards would follow. It was not the increase of export, but vice versa, complete psychological, economical disaster, let us say, in the beginning of the 90s. And second one, I think, was very important to have this positive agenda. You might discuss it economically. Was it good or bad? But at least in political terms, it was a positive agenda to keep this Latvian national currency strong. And... At the end, as we see, the Latvian government increased its, its proportion in Latvian parliament, in fact, winning absolutely in, in, in a parliament. Uh, so, and giving a certain kind of political capital to start to, 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 to uh, already to promote structural reforms. And in fact, the government was uh, very much mentioning about need for structural reforms before elections. So that's why, again, even though political arguments is not really in sort of the justifying economical uh, decisions, but at the same time, I think politics were very important in this part of keeping also certain kind of stability. But my question would be completely different, actually. And, and sure. Right. Uh, and very short. Uh, I'm sorry <laughs> for monopolizing a little bit the floor. Uh, the, my question would be extension uh, of what today Bronislav Komorowski said. Uh, he said that uh, we, Poland, the only country which was sort of the, with a green, uh, green island as they were uh, themselves positioning uh, in, in, in media, internationally and domestically, uh, that they were lucky with one thing with banks, that those banks which been in Poland were very responsible. And this is probably a little bit provocative for Anders because, uh, of course, the banking sector in Latvia is mostly Swedish sector. Mm -hmm. So in this case, would you say that Swedish banks or banks in general in Latvia were also irresponsible and somehow being blamed for what happened economically in Latvia? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, quite uh, interesting. Uh, were the Swedish banks uh, irresponsible? Uh, there are three banks we're uh, talking about. They, uh, the credit expansion in 2005-2006 was 50-60% a year, which is far too much. So, of course, that was irresponsible. This has been discussed in Sweden. Should anybody have stopped it at home? And it could have been Riksbank in the central bank, uh, which says... Uh, no, this is the responsibility of the financial uh, inspection. And uh, they say that this was not really a risk for the bank because the banks could not break, uh, break down. So, and uh, then on the Latvian side, they uh, said, we can't really order the sweet, big Swedish banks around. So it's very much that it fell between all chairs. For the Swedish banks, this was not really a big risk. And... Uh, it was extremely profitable since they uh, borrowed cheap uh, at home and lent at much better interest rates. So Swedbank, for example, uh, got one quarter of the profits from the, uh, from the Baltics. So, of course, in hindsight, this uh, was irresponsible. At the time, it didn't look responsible, and nobody was really uh, uh, responsible uh, for doing it. And... Uh, uh, then what happened was that uh, uh, Latvia in early uh, 2007 tightened policy a bit 
uh, with some anti-inflationary uh, policies, mainly uh, tightening uh, the loans to, to the mortgages. Uh, Swede, uh, SCB uh, tightened uh, uh, credits in June uh, of 2007, and uh, Swede Bank a few months later. So this was what started the, the cooling off in, uh, in Latvia. So it happened far before uh, uh, Lehman uh, Brothers. And uh, the big blow to Latvia was Parex Bank. And uh, uh, essentially you can say that the Latvian state didn't pay anything for the Swedish banks because uh, the peg held. Uh, and early on, the IMF had expected a cost to the <laughs> Latvian government of 15 to 20 percent because of uh, uh, the uh, bank, uh, bank crashes. In fact, it was only 5 percent of GDP, and that uh, was uh, uh, Parix Bank. So Parix Bank was uh, the only big bank in Eastern Europe in relative terms that was fully domestically owned. So on the contrary, Latvia's problem was that only 60% of the banking system was owned by foreign banks, while in Poland it was uh, in the order of 80%. Uh, the the uh, second biggest bank problem in Eastern Europe was OTP Bank in Hungary, which was also domestically owned. And the problem is not that they were domestically owned per se, but that they financed themselves on the uh, pan-European uh, uh, wholesale market, uh, essentially in Swiss francs, while uh, whenever there was a parent bank, they took care of uh, their subsidiaries so that they didn't collapse. Admittedly, they, they tightened uh, uh, loan standards in the, uh, the crisis and uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, the credit uh, shrank sharply in all the, uh, the Baltic countries, but uh, that is just self-defense in the uh, crisis. So the overall answer is yes, the Swedish banks were irresponsible, but uh, so was everybody else. And the big damage came really from the banks that were fully domestically owned and also irresponsible. Sure. Um, I'm glad that I've found one point that I can agree with Anderson is the Swedish banks were hugely irresponsible. You know, any bank that has a credit bubble like that uh, has to bear a lot of the responsibility. Uh, what I would say as well, though, is it's an open secret that the IMF thought that without a devaluation, Latvia's economy would collapse the way in which it did. And the IMF was pushing for a devaluation uh, after 2008 you know, as part of their program. The European Union did not want this occur precisely for the reason that this would cause problems in the banking system. There was a fear that this would produce contagion throughout the region. So Latvia, in my view, was sacrificed you know, for the sake of the European banks. We're seeing this again right now playing out in Ireland. We're seeing it playing out in Greece. We're seeing it, we'll see it playing out in Portugal, and we see it playing out in Spain. Those countries are not being permitted to either restructure their debt, uh, are not being permitted to restructure their debt not because it's in the interest of Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain, but because it's in the interest of the German and the French banks who hold something like $2 trillion. You know, if you take the debt of those four countries, it's $2 trillion. So they're being sacrificed. 
Just the final point I'd make in terms of the devaluation, when a country's currency becomes overvalued and when you've got to get a real depreciation of the currency, you can do it in two ways. You can either have a nominal devaluation of the currency, do it very quickly, or you can choose the route that Latvia is choosing. You can restore competitiveness through price deflation. Price deflation has the same effect on the ability for people to service the debt as devaluing the currency. So what's occurring is as, as prices and wages fall, people are not in the position to, devalue, to service the debt. All that you've done is you haven't got rid of the problem. You've, in fact, compounded the problem by driving the economy deep in the ground so it makes the debt less serviceable. What you've done, though, is you've postponed the time that you've got to recognize this. You know, so you haven't avoided the bank losses. The bank losses are there. Those are bad loans. Whichever way you slice it, because the currency is wrong, the currency has got to go down, all that you've done is by not devaluing right up front, you've managed to kick the can uh, forward. And I think that that, I would imagine that that is going to be a headwind on that economy going forward. That, together with the fiscal restraint that has to occur and these losses, you know, for me, it doesn't make it too good. I, I'm just not too sure that Latvia is going to recover, particularly if my view of Europe is right, you know, that if we have a major crisis in Europe over the next 12, 18 months, uh, Latvia is not going to be exporting its way out of its problem. But, Desmond, the quantities here are totally different. Uh, Latvia's prices last year fell by 1.2%. Uh, uh, competitiveness improved by 6%, uh, uh, while... Uh, if there had been a devaluation, I think it would have been in the order of 50%. It would anyhow have been a much larger number, so you would have got much larger defaults in that case. Yeah, but we still have to... Latvia still has to regain that competitiveness. The way in which Latvia is running a current account surplus right now is through having a very depressed economy. If the, as soon as that economy grows... What you're going to be doing is sucking in the imports. You know, so if you've got a very depressed economy, it's very easy to balance the uh, uh, the books. I, mean, I, I agree that you can get some gain in competitiveness through productivity increases. You know that that is the better way uh, to do it. But I think that you know, just looking at my chart on what the real effect of exchange rate is, Latvia looks like it's got a long way to go. You know, in terms of restoring uh, international competitiveness. Uh, Andrei Larinov. Um, I have a little uh, question for clarification on this, uh, for you, and if I may have four co short comments. One uh, question concerning this, what you have mentioned, rise in competitiveness by 6%. How this rise is measured? And what's the definition of competitiveness that you are talking about? Real effective exchange rate using Eurostat statistics on it. All right. Okay. Um, here's probably would be my first comment, if I may. Uh, so just the uh, – first of all, thanks to both uh, uh, presenters, because I think it's – and uh, Marion, to you for the, kind of contrasting the views in such an interesting way. 
Uh, it's a, lo a lot of things, I think. Uh, and the first issue that really should be discussed, and to my view, uh, probably even in more depth, is real exchange rate, as some kind of now coming right now. Uh, because we have only some kind of uh, slide that Desmond has shown uh, with real exchange rate for um, uh, Latvia, not much for other uh, countries, and not much uh, debate about the some kind of how this real exchange rate um, uh, can be compared in the long perspective, in some kind of in the regional perspective versus European Union and other uh, trade partners. And I think this is the essence of this, uh, of this question. The second one is just I would um, uh, stress it. Just It's rather hard to discuss issues, even uh, not only one Latvia, even three Baltic countries, without taking into account some other countries in the region and what kind of experience uh, other countries, at least in this region, had over the last uh, three years. And I would mention that at least uh, a few countries should be uh, put into, the, uh, into this comparison. At least uh, two countries of Europe that did not experience any output collapse during this crisis. Uh, they are first Poland, and another is Albania. And just looking at the experience of those two countries, and I know it's very important to look even, especially in uh, Albania, why? All other countries uh, were not able to sustain economic growth. Why those two countries were able to, to continue growth even at slow rate compared to previous years? And certainly the question about the particular uh, currency arrangements uh, should be discussed here. And I understand that neither Zloty nor Lek were the part of the Eurozone. And uh, both countries have some... Uh, um, currency uh, exchange rate adjustment uh, during these uh, years. But also some other countries of the former Soviet Union that experienced uh, very similar, uh, maybe not to such extent, but similar output collapse. Uh, for example, Armenia experienced 17 years, 17% 17 uh, GDP um, uh, decline. Um, how all others, uh, not all, but some of those countries um, were able to come out of the crisis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough that, for example, Russia, Kazakhstan, Armenia, some other countries did devalue their currencies. And we know at least certainly it's too early to judge. It's true. Nevertheless, the length of crisis, let's of recession in those countries was four quarters instead of nine quarters in Baltic countries. Uh, certainly, once again, it's too early to judge. Nevertheless, some kind of food for thought. And... Um, Last probably question uh, issue that I would mention here. This debate about external devaluation versus internal devaluation is interesting, and it's just, it can be provided a lot of arguments on both sides. But first, it is to some extent possible to do both. And why not? Just to think about that. And second, if comparing uh, uh, one uh, devaluation to uh, with the other, Actually, there's a question about two issues. Speed with, with which a real exchange rate would come to some kind of to new equilibrium level or competitive level, whatever. And second, uh, what would be structural consequences of external devaluation versus structural consequences of internal devaluation? Because uh, choosing uh, each of those passes 
uh, would lead to different structural uh, consequences for economy, from economic point of view, from social point of view, and from political point of view. And I, just, I have to stop. I really have to stop you because otherwise you won't get anybody in. Sorry about that. Answer it, Will. <laughs> would you like to start? I understand. Like, can follow. Um, The only point that I'd like to make is just in terms of the exchange rate adjustment that I think that the speed is really very important. You know, that if you do a nominal devaluation, you get the exchange rate at a very much more competitive level very much more quickly so that you can then get exports moving immediately. You know, with a few lags, you'll get exports moving. If you choose to go the internal devaluation route, that takes you a long time, and it means that the exports only recover uh, too late to have prevented the economy from going deeply into recession. Uh, you know, you can theoretically do both. You know, you can externally devalue and at the same time improve productivity, uh, get lower wages. Uh, but that is not, you know, normally what is done is you put these at two extremes. You're either going to maintain the peg and go the internal devaluation route, or you're going to be adjusting the peg, getting yourself to an exchange rate uh, at, a, uh, at a very quick level. What You can't really talk about this, I think, in general terms, you know, that you've got to look at this on a case-by-case basis, looking at you know, what the country's circumstances are. An important point that I'm making is that the internal devaluation route is not a route that can be pursued by countries that have got very high debt levels. Because if you go the internal devaluation route, what you're doing is you're reducing prices and incomes, you're raising the debt levels to levels that are clearly not sustainable and are not going to be uh, financed. So that's really the reason why I think one's really got to go the... uh, uh, exchange rate change. Last point I'd make is that I don't think that uh, one's necessarily talking about uh, the choices on exchange rate policy be- between being the hardest of hard pegs and totally floating. There's plenty of stuff in between. What I'm suggesting, you know, if small countries want to ha- have a peg and there can be good arguments for that, that shouldn't preclude them from in extreme circumstances moving the peg, you know, where your imbalances have got so large that not to move the peg is going to involve a 25% drop in output, Uh, the country has to be out of its mind, you know, to choose the 25% uh, drop in output rather than, uh, you know, to uh, to move the currency. Thank you, Andre. Excellent points, uh, as as always. Uh, Three points that I want to make. First, uh, you didn't mention Ukraine, but Ukraine is, of course, very interesting because it's the country that changed exchange rate regime in the region fully. It devalued. It took down the banking system. That's the country that was really losing banking system, and it got uh, a decline in GDP of 15%. So it is uh, one of the countries that was uh, hit very hard. It was also one of the most uh, overheated. So my point here is uh, it doesn't really matter uh, what exchange rate regime you have. Uh, you get beaten in any case in this uh, East European heat, uh, overheating. 
The second point, that is, the three countries that did relatively well in financial terms, uh, that's Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia. And uh, uh, Poland and uh, the Czech Republic uh, had very strict uh, uh, governors of the central bank, Leszek Balcerowicz and Zdenek Toma, in, the, uh, 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 in most of the, the 2000s. And these were sufficiently large countries so that they could pursue some kind of independent monetary policy, unlike the Baltic countries that really didn't have that option because they are too, uh, too small. And therefore, they managed to hold back, but it's also that they had much less growth in the early 2000s, so they didn't have a, a precondition for overheating. That is massive uh, economic uh, uh, success. But note that Slovakia and the Czech Republic performed similarly, although they had different monetary regi regimes since Slovakia joined the euro in 2009. And then we have another couple of countries to compare, Romania and Slovakia, where Romania had really a floating exchange rate and Bulgaria had uh, a currency board. Uh, Bulgaria looked far more overheated in uh, terms of uh, current account deficit and in terms of uh, foreign debt, but it did much better than, than Romania. And if we turn to uh, the real uh, effective exchange rate, the country that took the biggest beating from uh, 2000 until 2008 was Romania, which had a floating exchange rate, while the Czech Republic, which also had a floating exchange rate, came uh, uh, number two, and only then you have Latvia. So the Baltic countries were not as uh, uh, competitive, I would argue, as, um, as uh, uh, Desmond argues simply because uh, they uh, in, in, uh, enhance uh, productivity uh, so much. And uh, this is very often underlying that one doesn't think of, in particular in the first half of the 2000s, uh, they uh, did very well and improved their competitiveness. So it's uh, 2000 to 2007, which is the overheating period. One last question. I, uh, let's take both, actually. Uh, very short questions, please. Gentleman in the back, and then. Um, I wonder if you get your opinion on um, you know, the, how the, the euro eurozone as an entity will be, say, three, five, ten years from now. I, uh, it's, it's, it sounds like uh, nationalism; these, these individual countries are starting to, um, you know, chafe under the combined rigors of the eurozone and do you have do you see the eurozone continuing three five ten years from now was it years or months <laughs> if you want to comment and then i'll take the last question okay i i think that uh, the eurozone is finding itself now there might be some defaults i don't think that will break uh, uh, the, the eurozone and uh, uh, what is needed is first uh, to have a strict fiscal policy. This uh, stability and growth pact has been a joke. I don't think it will be a joke in the future, unlike U.S. Uh, uh, fiscal policy uh, right now, if I may say so. And uh, uh, the other part uh, uh, is that uh, there might be defaults within the eurozone. I think that uh, defaults 
should come as a surprise. You shouldn't plan for them, and you should take care of them when they happen. I think that's perfectly possible. That's normally an ad hoc uh, 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 solution. And then you need some bailout mechanism. That bailout mechanism has been set up. I mentioned uh, the problem of insufficient uh, financial regulation within the European Union and uh, regulatory agencies that is being sorted out. So I'm optimistic. I think that this is a massive mistake, which is so bad that it won't be repeated. And therefore, you can compare this with uh, the big overheating in Germany in 1873 uh, after the unification of Germany, uh, which led uh, to a long period of uh, deleveraging and uh, low economic growth. But I think that the Eurozone will survive and that uh, this will uh, be a base for the future. Um, I have a somewhat different view. <laughs> uh, that, you know, there's no way, you know, that perhaps I could just mention an example with which I'm very familiar is the Argentine convertibility plan in 2001. The imbalances in Argentina in 2001, if you look at any measure, you know, whether it's the current account deficit, whether it's the fiscal deficit, whether it's the level of debt, all of those levels are literally half the levels that we've got in Greece and Ireland. So it's inconceivable that these countries can make this kind of adjustment without causing the deep kind of recessions that we saw in Latvia. There are two ways that the, uh, that the euro can come unstuck. It can come unstuck from the top if the Germans turn off the financing spigot that the Germans taxpayers, if they decide we've bailed out Greece, we've bailed out Ireland, now you're asking us to bail out Portugal, now you're asking us to bail out Spain, they can say no. That is the one way it can come unstuck. The more likely way in which it can come unstuck is that the Greek population can be saying uh, there's got to be a better way than having a deep depression with no prospect of getting out. You know, and I think my view is that that occurs not in three to five years, but that occurs in something like 18 to months to two years. The notion, you know, Europe is just showing that it can't really get its act together. They can't, you know, the Germans are very reluctant to increase the size of the European financial stability uh, facility. Uh, they're very uh, reluctant to provide these countries with money at cheap rates. They're charging Ireland... 5.8% of interest. There's no way that the debt dynamics uh, works. Uh, so this is really, uh, it's not a question of if this is going to happen. I think that the only serious debate you can have is as to the timing. You know, maybe my 18 months to two years is a little bit too quick. You know, maybe it occurs quicker, maybe it occurs slower, but this is something that is flawed. Just the last point I'd make is that what distinguishes this from, you know, a case like Argentina is that you've got four dysfunctional countries at the same time. So you've got a sequence, you know, that we put Greece to bed six months ago, and then, you know, the crisis was over, allegedly, and then Ireland pops up. Now the markets are beginning to focus on Portugal. It's only a matter of time before Spain occurs. Then we're going to have all the kind of political instability in Ireland, uh, you know, where the opposition is talking about wanting to reopen the negotiations 
wanting to do uh, restructuring, you know, there's no way that in a market system you're not going to have capital flight, you're not going to have banks not rolling over the debt, and the amounts of money are just far too big uh, for the German taxpayer to, you know, be picking up the bill. What they're doing right now is they're doing it through the ECB, which is not transparent, and it's through the back door. But the ECB, Axel Weber, isn't too excited about this on the, on the ECB board. Thanks. I'm Barry Wood. I write about Eastern Europe's uh, economies, and uh, thank you for stimulating presentations. My question really has to do about uh, what Desmond called the holy grail of Euro membership being removed. I think this is uh, very significant because, indeed, anybody who spends time in these three nations knows that uh, Euro zone membership is the holy grail. That was going to solve the problems. So now with Estonia coming in and uh, Lithuania and Latvia waiting, uh, my question is, what kind of European growth do you see over the next one or two years in terms of being able to provide stability and export growth for the three Baltic states that won't serve to discredit Eurozone membership and thus really take us back to zero. I don't see this question as very dramatic. Uh, growth will be between one and a half and uh, uh, two percent, and it will be much higher in the Baltic uh, countries uh, for the reasons why they had uh, higher growth uh, before. If there's anything that I'm worried about is that too much money will come back uh, too fast. Uh, Estonia has now uh, over 5% inflation in uh, year over year in the latest monthly uh, number. Uh, the Estonian economy uh, is, was now in the third quarter growing by 4.7%. Uh, and uh, I think that this is also an important reason why one should be grateful that they have not devalued because then they would get massive inflation and we would be completely worried about inflation. Now we are, even with devaluation, we are worried about uh, uh, inflation. So the question for Lithuania and uh, Latvia is not the growth issue, but it is if they can avoid getting too high inflation before uh, they manage to get into the euro. And both uh, Lithuania and Latvia, as well as uh, Bulgaria are adamant that they want to join the euro uh, by uh, uh, 2014. And uh, I don't think that this is uh, being easily uh, changed because, uh, as you say, the euro is the holy grail and remains uh, uh, so for them. And uh, it will be very interesting what happens in Estonia because why not put money in Estonia? What can be wrong about putting money into Estonia? But it's a very small economy. So uh, this uh, is really the question that we should be worried about. Uh, what will happen with uh, Estonia when it enters the euro? Then you normally get a lot of money. Slovakia got it. Slovenia got it. Why not uh, Estonia? And it's so small. So what uh, can it take all the money that comes? That's what I'm concerned about. Um, my concerns are a little bit bigger, uh, that basically I think when you look at 
the crisis in the periphery. It's not really a crisis in the European periphery. It's not affecting Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. It's rather affecting the European banking system. That what you've got at issue here is you've got sovereign debt in those four countries are $2 trillion, which is sitting largely on the books of the French, German, Belgium, UK banks. If you write down those debts, even if the Eurozone doesn't fracture, what you're talking about is a hit to the European banking system that is of the order of what they suffered with the Lehman crisis. You know, you've just got to do the math. You know, you write down this debt by 30%. You're talking about a $600 billion hit that somebody is going to have to be taking, and that's almost a certainty. My view is that if you have a banking crisis in Europe, you're not going to get much growth in the main part of Europe. You know, so I think that what you're going to have is you're going to have an external environment for the Baltic countries uh, that is going to be uh, pretty miserable, even if the euro manages uh, to survive this. Thank you very much to all of you for coming, and thanks to our speakers for a fascinating conversation. Thank you.